Right, I think we can now start. Hi, everyone. Uh, good afternoon to you all. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Zeynep Kaya. Uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Sheffield, and uh, I'm also a visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Center. I would like to welcome you to another Kurdish Studies series uh, organized by a series event organized by uh, LSE Middle East Center. Today, uh, we are here to launch the new edition of David McDowell's Modern History of the Kurds, published by uh, I.B. Taurus, Bloom, uh, Taurus Bloomsbury. Um, just before we start, uh, there are a couple of um, rules, very basic rules uh, about the uh, proceedings. So they will, David will present for around 10, 15 minutes, perhaps 20, uh, but then we will then move on to the Q&A session. Um, when we will open the questions, please uh, put your questions into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens and not the chat box. Um, and then after that, I will read the questions to David uh, for him to answer. If you would like to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag at LSE Middle East. Uh, and as you probably know, this event will be recorded and it will be live streamed um, onto Facebook. Okay, so um, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And welcome to David. Uh, thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure and a great honor to have you with us. Um, this is a special event for me, actually. Uh, when I first uh, began studying the Kurds, um, I bought a Turkish translation of Modern History of the Kurds uh, years ago, and it was a gem uh, in, as the literature on the Kurds was still developing. There wasn't uh, much published uh, on, on this uh, on this on Kurdish politics and um, David's book was the only comprehensive Kurdish history uh, covering the whole geography of the Kurds um, and in such amazing detail. So uh, it was a great opportunity and it was uh, it was a great place to start uh, studying the Kurds. So I was very grateful to him then. And this new edition uh, wonderfully achieves the equally very difficult task of updating the history of the Kurds uh, since late 1990s until today, uh, on top of what was already in the book. Uh, and this period since 1990s probably has been the most eventful and transformative period in Kurdish history. So I would really uh, like to express my gratefulness to David for uh, this brilliant contribution to the literature and for achieving such a um, difficult task. Um, so we are all very grateful. Uh, before I give the floor to David, uh, I would like to give a brief background information about him. Uh, David McDowell turned uh, to full-time writing in 1984. Uh, and since then he has written on Lebanon, Palestine, the Kurds, and also on Britain, and the British landscape since then. The first edition of A Modern History of the Kurds appeared in 1996. The new edition is the first major revision since. And McDowell studied um, Islamic history with Arabic, followed by postgraduate studies in modern Middle East history. His working life has been varied with almost seven years in the army, followed by five years with the British Council in India and Iraq, and two years spent with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in Lebanon and in Austria. He was also an NGO relief worker in Lebanon during Israel's invasion in 1982. So this is actually not reflecting <laughs> all that David has done. It's such a brief intro, but um, I don't want to take much of um, David's time. And I would like to give the floor to him uh, to tell us about his new book. And then, as I said, we will move on to uh, question and answers. Thank you. Zeynep, thank you very much for that very generous uh, introduction. Thank you everyone for joining me for this event. Um, and I should put on record that I have a profound debt to LSE and particularly to Zeynep and her colleague, Robert Lowe, for the encouragement that they gave me at the beginning of this updating process, which was in 2016. Now, some of you will be perhaps familiar with, with the previous edition of my book, in which case it'll need very, very little um, description from me. But um, I guess that few of you have seen 
the updated edition so far, which only came out a couple of months ago. And um, for those who've already seen my previous book, you will know that I have no particular thesis, I have no particular ax to grind. What I've tried to do is write a narrative history. And the reason I did it originally was because there was virtually nothing in the English language which gave a reasonably comprehensive overview of the journey that people who call themselves Kurds have taken. So I really, what I've tried to ask myself and tried to answer is just where have the Kurds got to today and what are the journeys that they have made to this point? And of course, those, those journeys which different communities of Kurds have made have been determined by numerous developments over the last 200 years. Um, specific events, external conditions, um, which I will, I will mention again a little bit later, and specific events which have affected them. But during those journeys that have been made, questions obviously arise. And the most obvious one, of course, is the question of identity. And the very title of my book suggests that the idea of ethnicity should be or is the principal consideration in terms of identity. And so I would like immediately to challenge that myself and say that there are um, many, many other forms of identity and you only have to think about your own life and think about the contexts in which you uh, have a different identity. For example, uh, at the moment with the Euro football competition, you may uh, be in fact feeling rather strongly about a particular national identity because of football, or it might be uh, something uh, to do with your religious identity that you might not be tremendously practicing in your particular religion, but you may be, but nevertheless, you might be very reluctant to marry someone who did not share the same uh, religious culture. And for Kurds, these, these, these have been factors. Um, you know, are you tribal or are you peasant? Are you urban? Are you rural? The questions of class and wealth power or lack of it. And in the last, certainly in the last hundred years, I would say that the question of location also has a very strong bearing on your sense of identity. And when, you, when one thinks about the large number of Kurds who no longer live in Kurdistan, who might live somewhere else, Istanbul, uh, Damascus, uh, Baghdad, uh, Tehran, but nevertheless, or in Western Europe or America uh, or somewhere else, or where you live obviously has another impact on your sense of identity. So I've tried in a way to try to take those into account and to talk about the way in which these different forms of identity have affected Kurds and how they think about themselves. And there are two new dimensions. They're not new at all, of course, but we've started to think about them much more in the last 30 years or so. And one of those is gender, which I think is enormously important. And, and I think that we've been very neglectful in the past of this dimension. But the other one is a question of age, which is still, I think, um, something that people are only just beginning to think about. And one or two people, thankfully, have already written about it. But young people are, now that they have voice through social media, um, are able to express ideas and feelings, particularly about the older generation who have tended to be the leaders. And after all, we are talking about a society which is still, uh, in many respects, uh, dominated by um, older men, um, 
This again has an enormous bearing on the question of identity. But there are also questions of which it particularly pertain to uh, Kurds of questions of their relationship with the outside world. And Boris James, who writes about uh, Kurdish society in the early Middle Ages, has coined a, a word of which I am envious and I'm going to use it and commandeer it. And that is a, a word he's effectively constructed, but it's perfectly clear what it means, in betweenness. And it's difficult to think of other significant groups of people who's, who have had to cope with this concept of in-betweenness. Kurds live between the great power centers and economies of the Middle East. And we tend to think of that almost entirely in political terms, the difficulties of balancing and coping with stronger people outside. And in the early Middle Ages, which is what Boris James writes about, it was between, for example, Mamluks and the Ilkhanids of Iran and having to handle that politically. And of course, it's been true under the Ottomans and the Qajars. Um, and it's still true today. I mean, the most stunning example of in-betweenness was in September 2017, when uh, the Kurdish regional government of Iraq held a referendum on independence. And overnight, they were reminded of the weakness of in-betweenness uh, when every single country around them um, ganged up to say, this is not gonna happen. But of course, in-betweenness also has um, important economic and social dimensions. Uh, Kurds are very dependent on their markets and their general economic well-being on the kinds of relationships that they've had, the economic as well as political relationships with their neighbors. And I've tried to address this in this revised edition. And the other point, which I think is worth mentioning is there is an in-betweenness in social terms. Many Kurds feel that they uh, are not necessarily so concerned about remaining purely within a Kurdish environment. They're happy to socialize. They're very often happier to marry somebody who shares their same religious identity, who is not of the same ethnic identity. They would do that far rather than marry another Kurd who nevertheless belonged to a different religious tradition. And this brings me on to another major question that arises. That is the question of destination. What is one looking for? What as a society is one looking for? Do I as an individual wish to belong in a sense to a social quest for um, the future destination? And if so, um, do I look for autonomy within the, and again, this is back to in-betweenness, the way Kurds are now configured with borders running through their society. Do they look to Baghdad, Ankara, Damascus, Tehran for, and decide just to assimilate and accept? Or do they want autonomy? Or do they yearn for um, independence? And of course, on the latter point, there is something of an irony for the part of the world, the part of Kurdish society, which has got closer to independence. And again, I've just mentioned in Iraq, where of course they now realize that they are, whether they like it or not, saddled with autonomy compared with, for example, many, and I'd say probably the majority of Kurds in Turkey who um, have settled for some years now for some idea of autonomy, not formalized in terms of Kurdish autonomy, but formalized in the sense of decentralization from Ankara and people allowed to express their own culture. And, and finally, I'd just like to 
um, I think, widen this. And this is something that I've not really discussed, but I think merits discussion, and somebody might wish to pick up on it uh, in their research. The Kurds represent the largest group of what I would describe as sub-state actors in the Near East. And if you look at the last century or so, um, certain sub-state actors have been very successful and have actually gained sovereignty and independence. And of those, I suppose, I was just trying to think about which ones these one could describe in this way. And it seemed to me one could talk about the Maronites of Lebanon having really been hugely successful at the moment when uh, France took over the mandate for Lebanon and effectively handed the Maronites power, which proved to be very temporary, although they technically still hold the position of president of Lebanon, Nevertheless, we now know that they've lost that power. And France, again, had a profound effect on the minorities in Syria, and particularly the, the Alawites emerged out of the different minorities that were so powerful within the Syrian army in the 1950s. And then you look perhaps at the most important and significant one, which is European Jewish colonists who achieved sovereignty and became a kind of superpower in the Middle East, effectively, again, as in the cases of, of Syria, they emerged because that they were basically, they had a patron, a great foreign power, first Britain and then the United States. And the only, the only sub-state actors I can think of offhand who have achieved sovereignty without the intervention or assistance of a great power um, is South Sudan, and I may be wrong about that. I've not, I've not followed closely the politics of South Sudan. It just seems to me that they are the, the one case where one could say they waged a, a civil war against uh, Khartoum and prevailed without an external agent. But if you look at the, for example, the Kurdish region of Iraq, clearly the external agency of uh, the Western powers, particularly the United States, was critical in 1991 in getting uh, a what turned an informal form of uh, protected autonomy, which was the Kurds adroitly converted into formalized autonomy, autonomy in, in 2005. But they would never have managed to do that uh, without the presence of a great power to help them. So I think that there's a, a question there, and I just wanted to flag up on this point a book a great classic by uh, L. Carl Brown, International Politics um, and the Middle East, which discusses how great powers and regional powers interact. But it seems to me that if there is something missing from that book, and it's a, it's a wonderful um, classic work, but if there is something missing from it, it is a much bigger discussion of how sub-state actors function and how they can be successful, but normally aren't. And I think on that note, I'm going to stop and um, let people ask questions. Thank you, David. That was great. And, and the new book is 700 words. It's, it's a huge, and um, I would recommend everyone to read it if you haven't read it, because what you described earlier about how your thinking has shifted when you were revising your work on the Kurds, the gender dimension, the destination, how it has transformed. It was just, it's just wonderful to have the opportunity to see you rethinking about, about, the, about the Kurds 25 years later. And I think that's why, I think it's a very, you know, it's valuable. Um, it's a very valuable contribution to read uh, in that sense. And I think uh, what was really interesting in how you situate the Kurds within the comparative cases of South Sudan or the Maronites. I think that's a very useful exercise uh, for all of us uh, to situate the Kurds within this international context and compare it with other sub-state cases. Uh, and you're absolutely right in international relations, international politics, the focus is so much heavy on the states themselves. We don't really look into the processes and actors 
um, that are non-state, whether in the sub-state level or transnational. Um, and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot to be gained from from looking into the, those cases. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, we have already a lot of questions. Uh, I will try to group the questions um, around themes. Uh, so I might ask you to answer a couple of questions in one go. Uh, but there's a, let's start with Tanya's question here. Um, she is asking, how do citizenship laws affect feelings of belonging and Kurdish identities? across the four main states? Well, of course, they affect uh, Kurds in Iraqi Kurdistan in a, in a completely different way. I mean, there, um, Kurds can enjoy um, full civic rights, uh, except I would then go on to say, if anything, that those civic rights are compromised by uh, their rulers who happen to be Kurdish. Um, and many, many younger Kurds feel very frustrated there. But of course, in uh, Turkey and uh, Iran and in Syria, citizenship is deeply compromised by the reluctance of those three states to um, recognize and, if you like, embrace in a positive way a Kurdish identity. So um, in the 1990s, um, Kurds in Turkey were still being uh, tortured and incarcerated. It was absolutely commonplace for any, any Kurd who insisted on Kurdish identity to be given a very, very tough time. Well, that, that has eased, but it is still very, very far from, from um, uh, enjoying equal status, even if you like, in the minds of other fellow citizens of Turkey or Iran. In Iran, it's complicated, of course, by the fact that Kurds are overwhelmingly Sunni, except for a minority in the southern part of Kurdistan. And the majority of Iranians, of course, are Shi'i. And the only Kurds who feel comfortable with the Shi'i identity of Iran are indeed Kurds who themselves are Shi'i and who don't share the, if you like, ethnic nationalist feelings of their fellow Kurds further north. But for Sunni Kurds, I think that probably the fact that they are Sunni is probably rather more significant in terms of their difficulties with, with the rest of Iran. Um, and in Syria, well, what civic rights are there anyway in Syria racked by civil war? And there, um, I think that uh, the Kurdish parts in northern Syria have, have had a very difficult time since the beginning of the civil war. But on the other hand, they have had the freedom to organize themselves in the way that they, they wish, but it's very much under conditions of war. So um, I think for them, of course, the very big question is what happens when this civil war finally plays out. I would like to say I'm optimistic, but I'm afraid I'm not. I, I think that they're going to have to do some very, very nimble footwork to retrieve anything of the rights and freedoms that they have enjoyed over the last decade. Thank you, David. Um, the questions are coming in, and so many of them. So um, there, there, there's the theme emerging in one of the uh, a range of questions about the independence or the future of of the Kurds. Um, so, um, in terms of, um, let me find the question here. Um, so Harold Walker is asking: Among independence, autonomy, etc., where do you, where do most Kurds? stand uh, now stand um, and then um, yes so it's kind of where do you see the future of the Kurds going this is a question about independence but I would like to add to that question also um, uh, Kasturi Misra questions uh, this is a historical question about independence um, were the Kurds promised statehood by Western powers after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire? If yes, 
why could it not be accomplished? So a question about independence and the future with one historical and one for the future. Um, David, over to you. Thank you, and, and if you could, um, you know, you're giving, you know, brilliantly short questions. If you keep keep, uh, keep up that, that would be great because we have lots of questions. Coming. Okay, I'll be quick. I think you must ask Kurds what they want in the future. Personally, I don't think that they are likely to achieve more than some form of autonomy. And, and, and I just add very quickly to that. Most people, if they are listened to, if they enjoy freedom of expression, if they have a full belly, if they have education, if they have health, don't get that upset about the flag that is being waved in the capital city. It is the lack of those things which drive people, I think, into being very passionate about fighting for their identity. So I think that these, these are the crucial issues which will determine how the thing plays out. Now about, about uh, the post-First World War settlement, I don't um, personally feel that the, the great powers uh, promised um, Kurds independence. They made all sorts of statements about an, an aspiration, but of course it's subject is subject to political situation. Uh, America had fantasies about an Armenian state. Frankly, if it had happened, and if it had been a Kurdish state, there would have been a civil war very similar to the one recently between Armenia and Azerbaijan um, in the last, that's been going on just a couple of months ago. I mean, I think it would have been very, very tricky indeed because they're intermingled. It would have caused terrific problems. And great powers, only follow their own interests. They don't have friends, they have interests. And Britain and France looked cynically, of course, at the Near East and they followed their interests. And with regard to the Kurds, what Britain desperately wanted was not a Kurdish state as such. It was quite happy if it existed. What it wanted was to keep Mustafa Kemal and the Turkish nationalists away from the border of Mesopotamia which is what Britain coveted. So uh, you have to frame it within what great powers wanted. Um, and I don't, I think it's a fruitless task to go down, to a fruitless thing to go down the road of saying um, that the Kurds were cheated um, because it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't lead to any answers. Um, the Kurds were at a stage where they unfortunately were still effectively tribally based and so could not themselves cohere sufficiently to determine their own future and I think this is part of the tragedy but great states don't behave well in if you're looking at moral terms they behave according to their own interests and they will always do that. Mm -hmm. Thank you David um, just a quick comment um, if you have questions please put it in the Q&A box because I'm not checking the chat box. I don't want to miss your questions. Please uh, put them in the Q&A box. Uh, it's at the bottom of your screens on the right. Um, one more question about the future, specifically about the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Um, and then um, there is a theme coming up about the intra-Kurdish intra -Kurdish, uh, issues. So I will then come up, you know, ask you questions in relation to that. But before that, uh, Lauren Lewis is asking, uh, saying, thank you for the great talk. I would love to hear your thoughts on a future analysis. What strategies will the Kurdistan regional government likely enact over the next 10 years relative to the question of independence? My goodness. Well, um, Lorna, I'm afraid you're talking to someone who doesn't think that inter Kurdish independence in Iraq is a terribly good idea. Um, and that I should I should immediately say it's not that I don't think that Kurds of Iraq don't have the right to independence, but I think that if the Kurdish region became independent, which I don't think it will, but if it did, it would be it would be under unbearable pressure from Baghdad, Tehran, and Ankara. So life is I think much easier if they have a formalised position within one of those three states. Um, Otherwise, they become a football and they would not be able to defend themselves. So I think that that's that's um, uh, 
I would just say that's there's there's really from in for my money there's really not a great future uh, down that road. Um, there was another question. Was that? Uh, that's all. That's all. Yeah. So the um the other I will ask three questions in a row. Uh, one of them is um uh, by Emil, Emily Muna. Thank you so much for the fantastic talk. I was wondering how you felt about the internal political divisions within the Kurdish movement, such as the tensions between the KRG and PYD Rojava. Uh, Harold Walker is asking the question of within Iraq, are the Kurds more or less divided among themselves than they used to be? Um, I think that was it. I think there was another question about the internal yes. dynamics. When I find it, I will ask it. But for now, over to you. Okay. Um, well, I, I realized there was another thing I wanted to say very briefly um, from Lorna's question. It seems to me that the government of the Kurdish region of Iraq has one overwhelming, it has several, in my view, overwhelming problems. Its dependence, almost total dependence on oil is a big no-no. Its inability to stifle corruption and cronyism is again a catastrophe. But the really big one is climate change. And I can't tell you, you'd need a climate scientist, climate change scientist to tell you, but for Kurdistan, this is gonna be an absolute hammer blow. And the conservation of water and the revival of agriculture, which my impression is that that's very weak. These are absolutely crucial considerations. Now about turning to the, 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 the uh, other two questions, I think you've got two, ideologically, two completely different approaches to the question of being Kurdish. One is a traditionalist one, and it's embodied, if you like, in Clan Barzani and how they performed and how they administer the Kurdish region of Iraq. Uh, and it's based on patriarchy, and it's based on um, power coming down from, from the ruling elite. And, and against that is an ideological um, struggle by those that pay court to the thoughts of um, Abdullah Erjalan. Um, that is a much more democratic or apparently democratic approach, but it also uh, is very, in my view, very authoritarian. And I kind of feel that the people who embrace that, there's a sense in which I feel that they can't actually help themselves be authoritarian. You know, there is a way of us all thinking the same way and be saying, but we're all democratic, when actually you are in a sense conditioned to think along certain lines and there's a great reluctance to question those. And if you want to look at who does question that in Turkey, um, for example, you go and talk to Kurdish businessmen in uh, places like Diyarbakir and they are, profoundly frustrated. They're very sympathetic to the pro-Kurdish political movement, but at the same time, they're terribly frustrated by their dreaminess about the kind of economy that really exists. So I think there's a real problem for that. On the other hand, I would have to say, personally, I would feel much more comfortable being in, I think, in, in somewhere like Diyarbakir with the pro-Kurdish uh, state of mind than in the Kurdish region of Iraq, where I would personally find the patriarchal approach uh, quite difficult to cope with. And that brings me on to um, Harold's um, question about um, the divisions within the Kurdish region of Iraq. And um, I've not been in Kurd Kurdistan for a long time, but everything I read tells me that the profound conflict between the KDP and the PUK has just not gone away and it won't go away. We're talking in my view about Montague and Capulet. These are two rival power centers which are still committed to defending their patch and controlling their patch. And they're prepared 
to um, cooperate with each other only in as much as it fits their own interest. And for me, the most telling turning point in the seriousness of this was in 1996, when the KDP allowed Saddam, cooperated with Saddam Hussein to recapture Abil from the PUK. If you're prepared to go that far and to sup with the devil, the people who've committed the unfall, in order to um, worst your Kurdish rivals, that tells you an awful lot about where your loyalties are, and they are with your own identity group rather than with the Kurdish nation as such. And I think that that's a really, um, whether that's dissipated, I don't know. But I think that that remains a kind of real problem in the, in the sense of a Kurdish nation in Iraq. And of course, some, a lot of people, particularly young people, just have walked away from all that. They really hate it. And, and, and uh, it's, it's impossible not to be deeply sympathetic with the revulsion of the way that the older generation has uh, spent their political capital, have not nurtured the economy, and in a sense have failed them as a generation. Thank you, David. Um, one more question about the um, reconciliation, uh, about, the, uh, about the ongoing uh, reconciliation by George McCatticom, I think. Thank you for a great talk. It will be very interesting to get your perspective on the ongoing intra-Kurdish reconciliation process. If you have any thoughts on that, um, please. No, I have no... I'm afraid I really can't answer that because I, I'm not um, party to such discussions at all. Thank you, that's great. Uh, I'm just going to move on to the next question. This uh, question is more um, about two dimensions, actually. I will combine, uh, they, not that they are related, but one of them is about Islam, the other one is about gender. Uh, so, uh, Juan Kurdi is asking, I think Islam is the most problematic I identity that's, that affects the Kurds' path to an independent state and identity. How do you see a way out of this subordination to Islam, hence the other states? Um, another question, this one is unrelated to it, but it would be great if you could answer both, um, about gender. Um, so I know in your uh, new edition, you cover both Islam and gender, uh, and you discuss them in detail. Um, uh, Hosan, I think Hosan Mahmoud says, congratulations on the publication of your book, David, about the gender dimension of the book. I wonder how you approached it. And what made you rethink the book in terms of including women slash gender issues? Well, I must immediately say that I'm greatly indebted to Huzan, who I interviewed um, when I was researching. So uh, she herself must take credit, um, or I won't say blame, because I, if I misunderstood and she's critical of Huzan, if you're critical of what I've written, then it's my fault entirely. But if there's any merit in it, you, you among one or two others, must take the credit. So um, very briefly, the, on the question of gender, it seems to me, I mean, I was following what had happened um, with, with Kurdish, Kurdish women who have started asking awkward questions. And one finds that they've been asking these awkward questions in Iran, in Iraq, and in Turkey, and I guess in Syria, but I don't think I picked up on, on, on that in the really early days. But really since um, probably the late 1970s, or certainly the 1980s, one starts to see evidence, but it's been grow a growing chorus. And I think one of the questions I've asked myself what, what is the prime source of identity? And in writing about um, the gender question in Turkey, um, I've noticed that there are people who, uh, women who feel much more strongly about being a woman than being either uh, Kurdish or Turkish. And I've tried to give um, space to that, that viewpoint. Others who have been very active in the um, Kurdish 
armed movement and in the civilian movement. And I've again tried to give voice to their view. And the other thing, of course, is, is the position of women in, in a patriarchal society. And how do you change that? And I've tried to give space to that in, in certainly in Iraq and in Turkey, in talking about the struggle of people by, by Kurdish people and by, by women in particular. And of course, that brings one on to the very vexed question of things like um, uh, shame killings, which uh, um, I, I will not call them honor killings because it, it, it defames the word honor and it's to do with shame, not honor in my view. But I've, I've tried to write about that and show how while political leaders are saying, oh yes, that's a bad thing, um, one senses that actually it's not really being carried through in the way it should be. That the patriarchal attitudes, it's like, it's like racism, it's, it, there's a time lag. You can have a government deploring racism, trying to condemn it, um, but you know that there will still be people with that kind of thinking. And I think that that's true um, with the question of gender. So shame killings, um, FGM, which I think actually my understanding is that that is really being now stamped out and it's uh, long overdue. Um, so I probably said enough about that. I, um, about Islam, um, I, when, as soon as you say that Islam might be problematic, you're already in a sense positioning yourself. And I think I, I probably shouldn't. I'm not a Muslim, um, and I suspect that many Muslim Kurds who are observant Kurds don't see the problem that the questioner sees. So I think that this is a very, very tricky one. I mean, I think you just have to accept that whatever identity individuals choose, if they feel it's valid for them, then it's very difficult for outsiders to challenge that. It just happens to be a fact of life when dealing with that person or that group of people, that is part of their worldview and one must take it into consideration. Um, I think that the difficulty for Kurds on a political journey, one of the difficulties is their, their difficulty over um, their relationship with people who are, for example, not Muslim. So we see this as a real problem with the catastrophe that befell the Yazidis um, in 2014. So you could put all the blame on Islamic State um, and say, well, this was a, a product of Islamic State. But actually the very fact that Kurdish Peshmergas were not prepared to sit and eat with Yazidis because they viewed them as unclean, presents huge problems. And that's not a religious problem, that's a cultural problem. I mean, it can be described as Sunni versus Yazidi, but actually it is not to do with, with true religion, it's to do with, with culture. But um, clearly, uh, if you want uh, ethnic solidarity, then such things need to be put away. Um, I think it's very difficult to put them away because these attitudes tend to be very entrenched. Um, I've only got to look at my own society and I, I and, and somebody who is not a native of Britain will see it in even greater clarity than I do, the entrenched attitudes that my society has. They don't go away easily. Thank you, David. Um, a question about the concept that you use in betweenness. Um, so Mjet Kurdnijad is asking, do you think that in-betweenness is inherent in the Kurdish sociopolitical situation? If yes, don't you think that this idea is somehow essentialist as we impose today's image of the Kurds upon the history and the eternal existence of the Kurds? And he followed this question with a comment. Um, and if you don't think so, but the historical narrative you present about the Kurds suggests that essentialist reading that in-betweenness is inherent. So can you share your thoughts about this? Well, quickly. Um, certainly, I mean, clearly uh, you could talk about people who today describe themselves as Kurds, 
who had no sense of in-betweenness, if you like, um, a thousand or two thousand years ago when they, if they were not subject to uh, greater powers, but we know in fact that they were, that they were subject to uh, the Medes and Persians, the Assyrians, uh, the Sumerians, all these people traded with the inhabitants of the mountains, who I assume uh, are the forebears of today's Kurds. Um, but my point is that if you are landlocked, you're having to always to deal with somebody else. Um, and if you live in mountains, then the people on the plain um, are almost inevitably going to be stronger and richer because they have richer lands. They can produce more wealth. So in that sense, in-betweenness is, is a completely neutral thing. It's a geographical thing, although having said it's a geographical thing, it actually affects people's thinking. In-betweenness is not entirely negative. If you think about the last um, 100 years, um, and in fact earlier, 200, 300 years, in-betweenness has given uh, Kurdish leaders a, a measure of flexibility they would not have had if they were locked totally within, say, the Ottoman Empire or um, the Iranian Empire. Uh, they've always been able to use borders politically. Um, they've used borders economically. Um, and, and I'd have to say, uh, the questioner used the term eternal. Um, I don't think any nation is eternal. We're all a bunch of mongrels, really, and we're constantly changing. So I don't think there is an eternal Kurdish nation. I don't think there's an eternal British one. In fact, I've just been reading a book by, a very good book by Gavin Esler entitled How Britain Ends, which is very perceptive about our present state of affairs. So I don't think that anything, there's nothing magic or sacred about a national identity. They come and they go. They tend these days to go very more, much more slowly because we've organized states and we have a United Nations. But nevertheless, um, there's no reason, no a priori reason why they should be permanent. Thank you, David. Um, there are a number of questions about Turkey and Kurds in Turkey. So question one by uh, Felipe uh, Gutierrez. What is the current situation of Kurds in Turkey? Thanks. Um, a second question from Karim. Turkey is increasingly becoming dictatorial. How do you see the Kurdish struggle evolving there in coming decades as Ankara continues to suppress the HDP, including recent efforts to ban it? And the third question is from uh, about Turkey and related to Syria from Dilan Roshani. Will Kurds ever be able to come to terms with Turkey? Do you think there is any meaningful, any meaningful pressure on Turkey behind the scene to find a peaceful solution with Kurds? Do you think the demographic change of Afrin will be permanent? So a couple of questions have bundled in one, but you get the theme. Well, well, thank you. I, I have a confession to make. Ever since I wrote the first edition, when conditions in Turkey were for Kurds, a complete and total nightmare, much worse than today. And I found myself writing um, expert witness reports for asylum seekers from, from Turkey. And many of them, I found I was almost weeping as I read what they had undergone. And there was no doubt in my mind that they were telling the truth. And I think that that's not, not so today. But even then, I... I've always felt actually in the long term more optimistic about the future of Kurds in Turkey than those in Iraq. And this may strike you as very strange, but I think it's absolutely critical to take the long view. Erdogan is not immortal. And I think that the only way in which the Kurds of Turkey will find resolution is in what I would call productive reconciliation with the Turkish electorate. And I think that that is possible. In fact, I'm convinced it's possible. 
And I think that the HDP uh, in 2015, by its great electoral success then, proved that it's possible. And my suspicion is that the Turkish electorate is getting increasingly um, discouraged and uh, disenchanted by Erdogan, and that this will in due course show it reflect itself in, in the electoral process. And the, I suppose the real challenge is whether someone of the caliber and ability of Salahuddin Demirtas can demonstrate to Turks, the Turkish majority, that there is a potential win-win situation. Um, and, I, and here I have to say that there's been a question in my mind since actually completing this book and since it's been gone to press, I continually ask myself almost every day, are there no Turks who look back at what happened in the early 1920s and say, this was the most monumental cock-up, a terrible, terrible error we made. You see, if you look at the National Pact of 1919, um, Ottoman Turkey, but effectively Mustafa Kemal, laid claim to the non-Arab province, Asiatic provinces, which of course meant the Vilayet of Mosul, which is where Kirkuk's oil is. So the big question for me now, and I just wonder whether anyone's done research on this and I don't know about it, why did Mustafa Kemal decide that ideology, which was going to lose him, foreseeably lose him the Vilayet of Mosul, was such a great idea compared with saying to the Kurds, let us have a Turkish Kurdish state. There would now be no economic desert in Eastern Anatolia. Eastern Anatolia would be a thriving Kurdish speaking, but collaborative part of the Republic of Turkey. It would reach down into what is now Iraq because almost certainly the League of Nations would have found that the Kurds of the Vilayet of Mosul would prefer to be part of a Muslim entity than ruled by Britain. So it would have had the oil. I just keep asking myself, and, and Turkey still kind of every now and again refers to the national pact as something that they've missed on. So my question is, does anyone know whether there's ever been a discussion at cabinet level or in the higher circles of the Turkish elite as to have we made a big mistake? Because I see no trace of them saying so, and yet it seems to me a terribly obvious own goal. They've expended billions and billions of dollars on a futile and pointless war simply to deny people what they feel they are. It's a ridiculous situation. I'm going to end on that. <laughs> Great place to end. Thank you, David. Um, we are running out of time, so I will have to rush you a little bit because I want to be able to include um, as many questions as possible, which seems to be an impossible task, unfortunately, because there are so many questions and we have limited time. Um, a brief, uh, if you could briefly answer a question about the updates for the book. Um, so Karim is asking, could you please elaborate on how the latest edition of the book differs from the previous one? Are the updates spread out throughout the book or more consigned to additional chapters or both? And Shivan Fazil is asking a similar question. Thank you for this great talk. I am fortunate to be able to attend the last talk in 2018. My question is, Oh, hi. Um, he's also saying hi to me. Does the new edition cover the more recent events and the Kurds who came of age after 2003? It's briefly thank you. Possible. Hello, Shivan. It's impossible to answer this briefly, but please try. <laughs> thank, thank you for joining us, Shivan. Um, well, it updates from up to 2000, I stopped writing in 2020. Now that's a very uncomfortable thing because you end up writing as a journalist rather than a historian. But anyway, I've tried to do that. So it is in a sense up to January 2020. Um, and I've tried to cover uh, the events in, in all four states, Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. 
Um, but the other things I would draw my your attention to is I've tried to write more about gender, not just in the last 20 years, but earlier on in the 1990s. I've written quite a little bit about Syria, because I think that if one sees the troubled relationship that Kurds and Arabs have had, that it reaches back um, a couple of hundred years, there is a kind of residual problem, which I think there's a chance now that the Kurds have been resolving in the way that they've behaved with um, Arabs in northeast Syria. Uh, they've made some mistakes, but I think on the whole, they've really tried to work in a cooperative way. Um, I've written about, so I think the relationship in Syria, where it's the only place really where I talk at length um, about Kurds' relationship with another community rather than politically with the government. Um, and uh, yes, the other thing that I've written about is I've I spent more time looking at the 19th century. And here, I think there are two uh, important things. First of all, um, that Kurds started leaving Kurdistan at least by 1800, and there was already a community in Istanbul. So the concept of di diaspora has, um, it starts in the 19th century, very definitely at the beginning of it. Um, and that has an economic ramification for Kurdistan. And that interlocks with another key issue. And that is I've, I've addressed the question of Kurds and Armenians. And it's a pretty dismal story, but one can see how uh, climatic and economic and warfare um, influences all impacted to undermine what had been a relatively good relationship between Kurds and Armenians. So the Armenian genocide in 1915 does not come out of the blue. It comes from 40 years earlier. It start, really starts, in my view, in the 1860s or 1870s with competing for jobs in, in Istanbul, um, famine, um, competing therefore for food and resources, uh, warfare and the threat of Russia, these all really are making a big impact in the 1870s. So I've written, uh, I've changed quite a lot about that. That's wonderful. Thank you, David. And that was unbelievably brief, <laughs> which is an impossible task, so thanks. Two questions, uh, two range of questions. One of them is more about intra-Kurdish dimensions. And then after you answer those questions, I will ask a question, I will ask a series of questions about the international dimensions, because we have a lot of questions about those. So the first question uh, by Giaf Ramo, from your point of view, what is the political or cultural mistake that the Kurds make in order to get what they want, uh, leaving aside that they do not receive support or help from others, so more kind of internal dynamics. And the second question, this is kind of, I, I put them in the same category, but they, you know, kind of internal. Pardeep Nijar is asking, you questions where Kurds look to now, capitals of Iraq, Turkey, Iran, Syria, and do they assimilate? Do you think there is opportunity or movement towards an internal shift, looking within their own communities, cross-border identity, and organizing on such a level using modern media, notably internet and the social media. Do you, do you think these mediums provide opportunity for a rising Kurdish identity? And do we see this happening across Kurdish communities in the Middle East and diaspora? Over to you, David. Wow. Again, as briefly as tricky, possible, tricky Nadine, ones. Nadine kindly gave us another 10 minutes. So I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to uh, start criticizing um, Kurdish culture, but I think that there are real problems, which is not confined to Kurdish society, but across the Middle East. And that is <clears throat> the overwhelming importance of kinship, which of course has tremendously positive attributes, but also produces problems. Um, if you feel compelled to, if you're an employer, and you feel compelled to give employment, whether you're a political leader or businessman or whatever it might be, but you feel compelled to give uh, uh, preferment to a relative, this is not really compatible with evolving either nationalism or a democratic state. 
because the essence of nationalism is is a kind of horizontal collectivity. We are all we are all brothers and sisters in a similar venture. Well, clearly they're they're not. If some people are more equal than others, so I think that that's a a real um, problem that Kurds have to grapple with. And it seems to me that those in in uh, Turkey and Syria have been um, probably more successful, but I wouldn't say totally successful than those in Iraq. Um, I'm afraid I'm a little bit skeptical about cross-border solidarity. I think it happens in the imagination, um, probably the way that I support Scott, the Scottish rugby 15 when it plays. It's in my imagination, but I'm here I am living in Richmond, Surrey. So um, there are limits to my solidarity. And I think that in practical terms, I don't think it I think the only thing that's made a real difference to is the currency of ideas. And clearly the diaspora has been a terrific engine room for Kurdish political thinking. But I notice um, that except for highly educated Kurds, intellectuals who, who mingle and share ideas very happily indeed, um, at a rank and file level, people tend not to socialize so much across the national boundaries of Turkey and Iraq and Syria and so forth and Iran. Some do, but I think that on the, the majority don't. And I don't think they feel hugely comfortable. And it's slightly, I think it's slightly a class thing, um, but I, I may be wrong. I don't, I don't know the diaspora intimately enough, but I'm, I'm, I would be rather cautious about uh, concluding that, um, cross-border, you know, that one can somehow overcome these, these political borders. Thank you. Um, I have, I will read quite a large number of questions and they are all about the international dimension and Kurds' mm -hmm. relationship with great powers. Um, Shivan Fazil, the first question is by Shivan Fazil. Uh, not too long ago, the situation looked bright for the Kurds in Turkey, Syria and Iraq. The war on ISIS brought them international attention and support, but only a few years later, their fortunes were reversed again. What's your assessment? Will the Kurds always be victims of big power competition? And they are also unable to play their hands well. Second question on the same theme is by Hussein Chalabi. Great powers have interest and no moral grounds. Can you comment on great powers trying to weaken Iran and Turkey to get to see the idea of great Kurdistan. So the Kurds cause issues, um, Kurds cause issues that can destabilize Iran and Turkey. Big win for great powers, divide and rule. A question by Ayar Atta. David, you rightly said, the great world powers do not have friends, they have interests. Do you think the Kurds have allowed themselves to be used as Trojan horses in the region for a long time? and most recently in Syria and Iraq, thank you. And finally, question by Dr. Mohammed Hassan. In Syria, the Kurds can continue to rely on the Americans or do they have to go to the Russians or the regime in Damascus to obtain their rights, especially against threats from Turkey? Thank you. Okay. I'm. What, what, I'm just wondering what I should say. If you could um, just maybe great, a comment on the general position yes. of vis-a-vis -vis great powers would be maybe great. I think, I think there are times, I mean, Mullah Mustafa put far too much trust in the United States. Um, but I mean, the Kurds, I'm afraid, have a track record of putting too much trust in external regional powers. I mean, Tehran uh, would routinely say we would like to parley with a chief in the 19th century. Um, they would send all sorts of assurances. He would come in to say Tabriz and he would immediately have his head cut off. I mean, there's a long, long track record of duplicity and the great powers also practice duplicity. They, they want to use the Kurds as a cat's paw if they don't like, if America doesn't like Iran or Israel doesn't like Iran, it'll try to undermine it and it'll obviously use the good offices of Kurds. So I think the real, the real problem is whether Kurds understand the motive. Um, 
And it's very easy then to portray the great powers as simply a damaging factor. But you have to bear in mind that without the United States involvement, the uh, Iraqi Kurds would not now have formalized autonomy, formalized within the constitution of the Republic of Iraq. Um, that was a massive achievement when actually, I, you know, one should pay tribute to the Kurds, the leaders of the Kurds, because they actually outwitted the United States. The United States didn't intend um, uh, the Kurds to have autonomy within the Republic of Iraq, but the Kurds managed to wrong foot them and outwit them very, I think, rather cleverly. And I, I, I'm rather full of admiration. I think, I think after that, they started to make mistakes of expecting too much out of the Republic of Iraq. But this, it's, it's a tricky game and it's all, you're always gambling. Um, I think the Sir Kurds of Syria are in a profoundly difficult position. Uh, in the end, who is going to be there permanently is an important question. And clearly that's Damascus. So in the end, whatever temporary arrangements you receive, I think you have to keep your eye on your permanent neighbor just as the Iraqi Kurds, I think, took their eye off the ball with regard to Baghdad. And particularly in the last 10 years, I think they, they have been quite unwise in their treatment of Baghdad, forgetting that in the end, if Baghdad has a stronger army, then they hold the whip hand. And that's true, again, for Syria, that somehow the Syria's Kurds have to try to find an arrangement. And I think, I, I suspect that they're onto a better thing if they try to be in the good books of Russia, duplicitous though Russia, like the United States, undoubtedly is. But Russia is more likely to put in a good word in Damascus. I mean, the United States can't put a good word in for the Kurds in Damascus anyway. They've been unable to do it for anybody for the last half century or more. So um, Russia is important in that respect, but they've learned with the loss of Afrin um, in uh, three years ago, that Russia's quite prepared to give away a deeply Kurdish area of Syria for the Turkish army to occupy without, you know, any problem at all. So again, the Russians are not reliable. Nobody's reliable. They're all gonna follow their own interests. And of course, Damascus most of all, and Damascus has no idea of decentralization. It wants absolute rigid centralized authority. And uh, I think that that's really lies at the heart of the problem that Kurds there will have. Thank you, David. I'm afraid we'll have to finish it here. Uh, we have come to the end of our extra 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you, David, for um, your sharing your wonderful insights uh, and um, generously answering all the questions. And I'm sorry for rushing you a lot, uh, but it was a brilliant event. Thank you so much for, for your time and uh, for all your- uh, well, thank, thank you everybody for joining us.